Exodus chapter 22. We are, if you remember, in the midst of the book of the covenant in which God describes how the Ten Commandments that he gave to all the people should apply in the nitty-gritty, less-than-perfect reality of everyday life. So, we are in the section, or we just finished last week, two weeks ago, the section on property crimes at the beginning of chapter 22, about stealing animals, borrowing, keeping property for people, uh, etc., renting, all of those things. The section winds up with these three verses, 18, 19, and 20, before it moves into how to treat the stranger and the fatherless, which we will talk about, Lord willing, next week. So these three, let's just read the text, Exodus 22, 18 to 20. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with a beast shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to Yahweh only, he shall be utterly destroyed. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we beg your assistance. Open our minds, remove the veil, pour your spirit upon us in double and triple measure that we might understand your word, love your word, and love you as the one whom the word reveals. Father, we thank you for the justice and piety that you taught to your people of old. And we pray that you would teach us justice and piety through these words, through this revelation in the book of the covenant. We ask, Father, that you would help us personally, certainly, to shun sorcery, bestiality, and false worship. Don't let us be idolaters, uh, sexually immoral people, or sorcerers. Help us instead to walk with you and obey, obey you to be holy as you are holy. We ask that you would bring that about even through this sermon and through the Lord's table afterwards. Help me to speak accurately and clearly to your people. Lead us all through these thorny topics that we might glorify you with our mind, we pray, and with our actions too. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in many ways, these precepts seem self-explanatory. What do you do with a witch? What do you do with a bestializer? What do you do with a false worshiper? You put them to death. And just as the book of the covenant opened with a number of laws back in chapter 21 that end with, he shall be put to death, uh, 21, 14, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. So that section opens with these reminders of here are capital crimes within the covenant community. Now it closes with the same statement. Here are three other capital crimes within the covenant community. But these are not so clearly precepts of justice as the ones in the first part of the chapter. These fit within what we would call the civil law of ancient Israel. And the prospect of any modern Western government enacting prohibitions against uh, false worship or sorcery seems vanishingly small. What then do we do with this text? Do we say, that was for the Bronze Age, 
That is not for us. That was for the Old Testament. That is not for the New Testament. Or how do we even begin to answer the question? Might be a better question. The way to answer the question, brothers and sisters, is to look at the broader context. What is the Book of the Covenant about? It is about justice. It is about piety. Justice toward man, piety towards God. These are precepts that combine the two that take human justice and apply it to issues of piety towards God with the command, especially about false worship, but also about sorcery. In mixing piety and justice, God is making a clear statement. These two things go together. They cannot be separated. You cannot say human justice can exist only within the circumscribed horizon of this world. Human justice has no need for the transcendent, for piety in the worship of God. That's simply not true. These precepts make it clear that human justice too is dependent upon recognizing and worshiping the true God. Here's what I will end up telling you. Because our government is impious, and does not recognize true worship, it cannot apply the laws against idolatry and sorcery at this point. But we can and should apply them in our personal lives and in our churches, not by killing the people who partake in these abominations, but by having nothing to do with either the people or the abominations that they practice. So in principle, yes, the state is still allowed to punish these sins and to make them into crimes. In practice, the state is a million miles away from being prepared to do that. We will talk about that. But first, let's briefly discuss what each of these abominations is. You shall not suffer a witch to live. I will observe, first of all, that the Bible never, here or anywhere else, speaks of burning witches. That's not in the text. That is a very late medieval, around the year 1450, into the early modern period phenomenon. Roughly 200 years in there, 1450 to 1650, 1450 to 1700, there were various episodes of witch burning around Europe and the North American colonies. Now, that was not inspired by Scripture. Insofar as Scripture never speaks of burning witches or really of burning anyone else. That is, a punishment invented by devious, evil human minds. What is sorcery? Let's ask that question first. Sorcery, the witchcraft or the sorceress mentioned in the verse, is any attempt to communicate with demons or to harness dark powers to achieve your goals. Sorcery is any attempt to communicate with the supernatural and to harness latent supernatural powers. Now, where is the line between natural powers and supernatural powers? That is, what some of us call witchcraft, the practitioners may simply say is, no, this is latent within nature. I am simply unleashing the power of the apple tree or of the crystal or of whatever object they use to, to, to make their practices work. I would say that needs to be, that's left to be defined by the believer, by the one who knows nature. There are many powers latent within nature. That's very true. There are also many supernatural powers. Many spirits have gone out 
into the world. There are both. The sorceress is the one who calls upon the supernatural powers and attempts to manipulate them. Now what about trying to manipulate good supernatural powers? (laughs) Trying to get the good angels to do something. Trying to back God into a corner and force Him to do something. That's still sin, but it's not the sin of sorcery. It's rather the sin of tempting God. Or the sin of failing to honor your superiors. And those are also sins, but they are not heinous in the same way that being a sorcerer is heinous. So, there are various manifestations of sorcery in our society today. You can think of horoscopes. Uh, just look at where the stars were when you were born. Uh, what's your astrological sign? We can tell you something about your character and your future. This horoscopes are a form of divination, which is, again, the attempt to access the supernatural. Whether you conceive of the stars as guided by fallen angels, or whether you conceive of the stars as simply having powers latent within them that determine something about your character when you're born, the horoscope ends up being an agent of the supernatural. The Bible doesn't mention horoscope reading, It does mention other forms of divination. Ezekiel 21 is a great example. Ezekiel in prophetic vision sees the king of Babylon marching with his troops to invade Jerusalem. And Ezekiel records this, The king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the household idols. He looks at the liver. We read that and say, what? What is the king of Babylon doing? The king of Babylon, in modern parlance, is reading his horoscope to figure out which road to take, which is the better way to go and attack my enemies in Jerusalem. So shaking the arrows, you take a sheaf of arrows, something an army would typically have with them, you shake it up, throw it on the ground. The pattern in which the arrows fall is thought to reveal something about the future. A professional omen reader would travel with the army and he would look at how the arrows fell and he would say, Ooh, this one is crossed over that one like that. That's a bad sign, your majesty. Or he would look at them and say, aha, they're all lying like this. That's a good sign, your majesty. Similarly, he consults the household idols. Those people in the ancient Near East kept some household idols. The narrator of Genesis has a lot of fun with this when Rachel is on her period and she sits on the camel's saddle on top of the household idols. Her dad comes in the tent looking for him, and she says, Sorry, my lord, the custom of women is upon me. I cannot rise before you. And she's bleeding in a filthy way all over these idols, and we're all supposed to laugh. Be like, oh, that's so good, those dumb idols. Well, the king of Babylon consults these idols. They can't protect themselves from menstrual blood or anything else. And he asks them, How do I attack my enemies? And then finally, he looks at the liver. Now, he didn't have a liver in the freezer. Rather, he had an ox along or some kind of war animal, maybe even a horse. He would take this animal and his professional omen reader would stab the animal and then slice open its guts, peel them back, look at the liver, and then say, Aha, your majesty, this liver is shaped like this. This is a terrible omen. Or he would say, oh, see that little thing on the liver? This is a majorly good omen. We should definitely do the thing that I'm recommending. So 
we hear that and we say, that's absurd. Who would give power over their future to professional omen readers like this? But the vast majority of human beings in those days did so. Of course, even in the modern times, it's well known that Ronald Reagan's wife, Nancy Reagan, was a major devotee of her astrologer. And she wouldn't allow the president to do anything unless it had been okayed by this astrologer. As recently as 40 years ago, someone in high political office is doing this same thing, shaking arrows, consulting household gods, looking at the liver in order to determine whether it's an auspicious time to take on the Soviet Union or not. Same thing goes for other occult practices of divination in use today, palm reading. Show your hand to the gypsy woman and she looks at the lines and says, good omen, bad omen, or mediums. Someone who claims to be able to put you in touch with your long lost, dearly departed loved ones, whether through a Ouija board or through some other means of consulting with the dead. All of this is ultimately calling upon occult diabolical powers as a way of accessing information or practices effecting effects un, that are inaccessible by other means. God says, don't do this, don't allow this, this should not be in your society at all. Now, as with so many of the laws, the historical books record that there were sorcerers in Israel, and Saul actually went and paid a visit to the witch of Endor after he had expelled her from the land, and she came back in. But sorcerers flourish because people want to know things that they cannot know through ordinary means of human knowledge. People want to do things that they cannot do because of ordinary human limitations. And so they hire sorcerers, patronize sorcerers. God is saying, it's a crime to hire someone else to perform the work of divination for you. Hiring a hitman is murder. Hiring a psychic is sorcery. That is the bottom line. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Ouija boards, tarot cards, paraphernalia of the occult have no place in the life of the Christian. That at least is an obvious implication of the statement, you shall not permit a witch to live. Now again, the text doesn't say how the crime is to be tried, how the execution is to be carried out, what evidence is sufficient to convict, etc. This is not a manual of judicial procedure. It's a brief statement indicating that in God's perfect justice, witches are to be put to death. Sorcery is not an innocent amusement, nor is it uh, a clear adjunct to political power. Sorcery is a sin and a crime. The same goes for bestiality. We're not going to talk about this at length, but it's clear. Animals are God's gift. Sexuality is God's gift. Mixing the two is a crime. Finally, the command against false worship. Whoever lies with a beast, or sorry, verse 20, he who sacrifices to any god except to Yahweh alone shall be utterly destroyed. This is a command of piety, to sacrifice to God, and it's being enforced by the state. How do we read this? Well, I would say up front, enforcing the laws of the first table the first four commandments, is not, in principle, illegitimate 
for the state. As this verse alone makes clear, it is something is not necessarily a theocracy just because it has laws against false worship. In fact, many countries have had laws against false worship. Not because they were theocracies in the pejorative sense, but because the human instinct tells us if we allow people to sacrifice to the wrong gods, bad things could happen. But before we talk about the political implications, let me just note that worship is defined by sacrifice. He who sacrifices to any god. Worship must be costly. Worship that costs you nothing is unworthy of the name. Worship that's merely consumer entertainment where you show up to listen to excellent music and have your heart warmed by an encouraging message is not worship. Worship requires expense. Giving, ultimately, of yourself. But also, oftentimes, giving of your money to signify that you give yourself. Giving your time to be there. Your effort to participate. The money that it costs, the time that it costs to get there, all of this is sacrificing to the Lord. And of course, in the Levitical system, sacrifice was literally very expensive. You had to bring a bull, a ram, a lamb, at least a dove. And these animals, then and now, are not particularly inexpensive. They cost a great deal of money. Only God is worthy of sacrifice. Other gods are not worth your money, your food, your health, your children. The Lord is worth it as Moses is pointing out with this precept. Now, the commentators are united in agreeing that to say, not permit to live and shall be utterly destroyed are actually less aggressive than the statements in chapter 21, shall surely be put to death. They don't sound less aggressive in English. But anyhow, how do we apply God's commands regarding these three abominations? We read these commands and we say, yes, these commands are right. It's obvious that they're right. Sorcery is wrong. Bestiality is wrong. False worship is wrong. Every Christian heart says automatically, yes, that's wrong. And I can see and agree with the justice of God in banning these things. But what gives us the shivers is the idea that These laws are to be enforced by the state. How do we figure this out? Well, again, we look to the key concepts in the Book of the Covenant, which are justice and piety. The first principle, justice toward men. The Book of the Covenant is about justice, and it tells us, overall, love your neighbor by erecting a state that treats your neighbor justly. You can't love your neighbor by destroying the state and having anarchy. This is clear right in the beginning of the laws about death. uh, Back in chapter 21, verse 13, If he did not lie in wait, God delivered him into his hand. I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Now that very sentence establishing the city of refuge says the state gets to maintain a monopoly on violence. The state gets to tell you whether you can kill the person who killed your father. You don't get to say, revenge, he killed my dad, no one's going to stop me. 
the state can say, no, we are stopping you. You may not kill him. He's in the city of refuge. He is safe. We say frequently around here that an armed society is a polite society and there are so many guns in Campbell County that uh, we're bound to have peace and order. It's very obvious, my friends, that if something happened to our government and we returned to a warlord-type situation with factions battling it out for control, the guns that are here would not produce peace and order on their own. The state brings about justice. So justice means giving back. To the victim, it means giving back what he lost. Right? The state enforces the perpetrator to give back to the victim what he took, and then some. To the perpetrator, it means being forced to give back what he took. That's what justice is about. The second principle is piety. Piety is true worship and devotion towards God. You need both justice and piety. To drop justice is to become a crazed theocrat. They're not of my sect. Therefore, they are inhuman and don't matter and are to be slaughtered. But to drop piety and care only about this world is to lose even this world. Those who don't acknowledge the transcendent either don't give back at all, losing justice entirely, or justice becomes their be-all, end-all. We have to set everything right. We have to put every injustice to rest. We can't leave anything for God to wrap up, and therefore, we take on ourselves powers beyond what the human being has to try to wreak justice in every area. So, fine, right? Privately speaking, we understand that justice and piety inform our exegesis, our application of this passage. But where do we go next? Well, let's start with what we know. Private killing is unjust. Private killing is not for the individual to do. That is, if you have good reason to believe that your neighbor is a witch, or a bestializer, or an idolater, it's not your job to not allow that person to live. Don't organize a witch burning. As I just said, justice requires a state monopoly on violence. God has given the death penalty only to the state. That's what Romans 13 means with its statement that the state bears the sword. And it doesn't do so uselessly. It doesn't bear the sword in vain. But the second observation is that public execution of witches and idolaters is frequently unjust. Certainly the rash of witch burnings in that early modern period was largely unjust. Deuce informed me this week that the Salem witch trials were likely caused by a fungus that grows on improperly stored wheat harvested during wet conditions, and that the fungus secretes a substance essentially the same as LSD, and that the New England Puritans were having mass LSD trips, and then on their trips saying, I saw Lady Goody riding a cow to meet Satan. Or Lady Goody saying, I saw Satan come to me and I told him, yes, I will be your slave. And so in the grip of these LSD-fueled delusions, they had the Salem witch trials. Well, public execution of witches for things seen on LSD trips is clearly unjust. Not be- so God's law is not unjust. 
But our state is unjust. Our impious state is unprepared to define true worship. If we started a Bureau of Religious Affairs and we asked them to come up with a watertight legal definition of what is the true worship of God and what is not the true worship of God, they would have a very hard time doing that. Obviously, the churches themselves cannot agree on such a question. We don't have an iconostasis and huge banks of paintings of the apostles, prophets, saints, and angels all over this room. Our orthodox friends, brothers and sisters, do. We say it's not true worship to bow before those things. They say it is true worship to bow before those things. And that's just one example out of hundreds. The state is not prepared to define true worship. And I think, no doubt, part of that is the immaturity of the church, that the church is unprepared to get along and agree regarding true worship. Secondly, our impious state is unprepared to define sorcery. We can say that sorcery is traffic with the supernatural, with the evil supernatural. But in legal terms, what counts as first-degree sorcery, second-degree sorcery, third-degree sorcery? What evidence is necessary to convict? The modern Western state is frankly incapable of answering such questions. Uh, We can't see the damage that homosexuality does to the family and the broader society. How then would our state be able to convict voodoo priests or Wiccans? Ancient Israel, in other words, was equipped to enforce these laws in a way that we simply are not. Nonetheless, that said, in principle, it can still be right for the state to not allow the witch to live and to utterly destroy the one who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord. How do we know that? Well, essentially, when the state understands sorcery and true worship, it will be right for it to enforce these laws. When will that be? We can state with a fair amount of certainty that the state will not understand it before the church understands it. So long as Christians are reading horoscopes or consulting palm readers or going to mediums and necromancers, so long as Christians are uh, endorsing bestiality, so long as Christians are engaged in false worship, the state will not be in a position to enforce these laws. What about the church? How do we handle the three abominations in the church? Well, obviously we should teach against them. That would be step one. And that teaching against them should be in proportion to their prevalence in the church and in the broader society. I don't need to preach against bestiality on a regular basis. I don't think that that's a sin that has a lot of currency in the society around us or within our church. But there are many other sins that do, and those sins need to be addressed much more frequently. The second thing the church should do is excommunicate these three. If someone in the church is an idolater, is a witch, is a bestializer, and also wants to be part of the church, the church should say, no, you cannot do that. You don't belong here. That behavior is incompatible with the life of following Jesus Christ. How do you handle the three abominations in your personal life? Well, the first thing to do is that we need to recognize the extreme moral turpitude of these actions. Many Christians have gone way too far down the sin is sin road. And they can come away saying, 
Well, there's basically a moral equivalence between my little white lie and my neighbor's voodoo dolls and black masks. No, there is not a moral equivalence there. Yes, your little white lie is a sin that can damn you. Their voodoo doll is a sin that can damn them. But being a sorcerer is a far greater sin than stealing a pack of gum. They're both wrong. But you shouldn't draw an easy moral equivalence and say, pack of gum or voodoo mass, same difference. It's not the same difference. We should also reject every form of witchcraft, bestiality, and idolatry. These are not appropriate for the Christian. They are out there in the world. None of these is even a crime in Wyoming. Bestiality could possibly be prosecuted under an animal abuse law. But none of these is an option for the Christian. Jesus died so Israel could be in covenant with God. Part of that covenant is these laws that reveal the character of our God, His loves and His hates. He hates anything that ties human beings to the demonic. He hates anything that lowers us to the level of animals. He hates anything that turns us away from Himself because He is our only true God. These laws tell us something about our God. He didn't make these rules because He's a killjoy. He made these rules because He's perfectly good and loves perfect goodness. He brought his people into covenant with himself and gave them these laws so they could live with him and be like him through the mediator. Jesus has saved you. So shun these abominations. Live like a Christian. Not like a bestializing, idolatrous witch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word whose entrance gives light and understanding to the simple. Lord, we ask that you would write these things on our hearts. And we do pray for the day when the church matures and understands true worship and engages in it across the board. When the state understands true worship and agrees that this is true worship that the church is doing. The day when sorcery is gone out of the land and no one calls on the demons. Father, we ask that you would bring this about quickly through the coming of your kingdom as your son inherits the nations for his own. We ask that we in the church would show the world what it looks like to worship truly, to love animals rightly, not wrongly, and to have no truck with demons and the occult. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your son, whose word is perfect and true, whose name is faithful and true. Amen.